Okay, so thanks for coming back to the Lacrosse Thinkers podcast. And you can see we actually changed our studio. The original studio was very crowded right now. Um, we got our, our new equipment, and I got especially this ugly-looking red one. Oh, I think that's <laughs> pretty. It's uh, yeah. I, I got it from a pretty big discount, so I say okay. Don't care about the price. I don't care about the color. Just Makes go with the price. important. Yeah. So I save it to myself and give you the classy okay. silver one. Okay. <laughs> From now on, if you actually watch this, the one with red is actually going to be the host. Sometimes the host won't be me, okay. but the one with silver is always the guest because we give the best to our guest. <laughs> okay. So that's the first time we shoot with this equipment. And also, this is the first time we have a local business professions to join our podcast. We... During the past, we only interviewed, have interviewed the professors from UW Lacrosse and then uh, an outsider speaker who is doing the suicide uh, discussions on uh, veterans. But this is the first time we have a business profession coming to our podcast. And let's welcome Brian Tippett. I got this from your LinkedIn profile, so I'm just going to read it. He is the business manager of Hilltopper Refuse and Recycling on Alaska and part owner of the Seven Rivers Recycling LLC. And also you are the past international president and a lifetime member of the Solid Waste Association of North America. So before we go ahead and do talk about anything on solid waste, could you give us a short introduction of what you do and how did you get sure. into this business? Sure, well what I do, I'm the business manager of a local refuse and recycling company. And you might think a business manager works on accounting and on payables and receivables and really most of what I do are special projects things that crop up that are unique that we try to organize our business around and we have other people that are working in the accounting and accounts payable and accounts receivable so it's a lot of special projects and before that I actually worked for an ecology company as well called Applied Ecological Services where I'd meet with owners of landfills and mines how to naturalize the landscape, particularly after closure, where you can make it like a park. Before that, I worked for La Crosse County as their solid waste director and actually instituted a system that was multi-county and uh, initiated the waste energy program back in 1988. So it's been here a long time. 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And prior to that, I worked for the city of Janesville as their super fund, hazardous waste project manager and the landfill site manager there as well. Uh, and you say, how did I get into this work? Well, when I was in college, we didn't have a solid waste or recycling uh, major or a minor. We had one class, which was combined with really landfill technology with wastewater. I took that and I liked that. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of opportunity here. But I wanted to focus on hydrology and soil science because that was my major. Oh, okay. I was dealing with water science and soil science. So I really liked that and pursued work in that area, but it was during a recession, times were tough, so I went to work in, a, in the wastewater business. And one of the things in the wastewater business is we, we sampled groundwater samples. We had atomic absorption uh, spectrophotometer and a graphite furnace so we could, we could you know, look at things in parts per million for mer- mercury, even parts per billion, at the landfill of materials. And with that background, I got into the solid waste and hazardous waste work in Janesville and it grew from there. And something in our industry we're told is once you get your feet wet, it's very unlikely you'll leave. And I think that's very true. I've had a couple of headhunters, people that hire people in this profession, and they say there's no industry more, and they use the word insidious, Hmm. 
and actually it's it's not even the right word. Incestuous is the word, not insidious. Incestuous, that's probably a crude word, but that's the word used in this industry. Because once people get in this industry, they stay. People know each other. Uh, so it's How big a, is the community? Like, if people are doing, how big is the well, industry? The Solid Waste Association of North America, uh, which is Canada and the U.S., it's not a trade group. It's a professional education group. And so if you're in the profession, so companies can't be members. Only individuals can be members. And there are 10,000 members. And so if you have one company, they probably have one member, unless you're a waste management or a really big company, then you probably have, you know, far, far more than that. Uh, so there's 10,000 professionals that are in this. And when you look at the size, which is interesting, and I, I had to Google this because I thought you might ask this. Yeah. Globally, it's the $330 billion industry. In the U.S., it's about a $70 billion industry. And I look compared to the, in the uh, gross national product, how does it relate to other things? It's bigger than education. Wow. Which just amazed me. And I don't know these numbers, but just, and I didn't know this, but I thought you might ask. So I, I looked it up. Um, kind of makes sense, right? Education services is one percent of our gross national po product. Waste services is three percent. The federal government's only five percent. Okay, more than half the federal yeah. government. So it, it, it's shockingly large. Uh, and of the amount, you say, well, how much is, you know, the industry has a number of different aspects. So the collection aspect is about sixty-two percent of that number. And then the aspect of recycling or the transfer station where oftentimes they separate a little further that's 12 percent and then the aspect of disposal which is landfill and waste energy is the remainder so that's like 24 percent so the large so, portion actually goes to the collective yeah which was interesting 30 years ago mm -hmm. there were statistically really only two aspects collection and disposal you know the collecting and taking to a landfill or waste energy plant it was about 50 50 huh. but in the last 30 years, we've done a lot with transfer stations and a lot with recycling. In Wisconsin in the 80s, there were a thousand landfills. Today, there's about 50. Every town, village, and city had their own, and some bars in northern Wisconsin would have their own landfill. They weren't lined, they didn't protect the ground or anything else, but there were all these landfills. And so with new federal regulations, they ended up being closed, and now we're down to 50, but they're very large, and the distances oftentimes are pretty far. So they have transfer stations that waste goes to, and then it may get sorted into bulky waste like demolition debris that goes one place perhaps, then the trustable waste, the garbage type waste gets taken to the landfill. And so to cut down on the, the transportation costs, instead of hauling it in the curbside trucks, they have these larger trucks that will haul it 100 miles to a landfill perhaps. Interesting, so it's almost like a, like a normal sized company like Amazon, it's just like instead of a sell stuff, we actually, you know, collect stuff and then recycle them or actually bury them. So you actually have a complete business cycle, including like sourcing and making and production and even like um, transportation, logistics and all these kind of things, like a big company, right? Yes, yes, it's amazing. And it, it's, it's reverse. Yeah. You know, like Amazon sends out, the waste companies bring in. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is kind of the reverse. Another thing to think about is actually maybe it's not too surprising the industry is so big because, you know, how many of us get education? And how often do we get education? But think about waste, how much waste do we generate every every day or even per 4. hour? 4.38 pounds a day per person. 4.3 pounds per day per 4. person. 4.38 pounds per person. That's what the US EPA says. And of that, a portion is recycled, okay. maybe 30, 25% nationally, locally, depending on your crunch numbers more. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, 4.38 in soybeans. How much is that in lacrosse? 4.38 times, three, 4 .38. times 365 days of the uh -huh. year. And uh -huh. I did the math before I came. Times 50,000 people. It's about 80,000 tons. 80,000 tons. A year. A year. A year. It was interesting. In 1985, we landfilled 85,000 tons. That's before waste energy in lacrosse. But in 1985, it was primarily city of lacrosse because in 1985, all the towns had their own landfills. Yep. And so there was mostly city of lacrosse, and, and there are fewer people than there are now, but that gives a, a benchmark. But since then, we've grown in our own in our local market. We not only have lacrosse county, it's not just the city of lacrosse, it's lacrosse county, it's Houston County, it's Buffalo County, it's Trempola County, it's part of Wabasha County. They all come here. And we landfill far less than we did before because about 70, 75,000 tons go to the waste energy plant. Hmm. And I forget the number that comes to the landfill, but I'm thinking it's around 50,000 tons. It might be more. You need to talk to those people to know because I don't watch those numbers. But the rest is recycled. Interesting. So before we go move into recycling business, uh, why do you think people all stay in this industry? There's so many aspects to it. And, and one of the things, when I worked for Applied Ecological Services, the president of the company used to go to a number of trade groups for his industry, which is ecology. Uh, and then he came to the, the solid waste recycling ones. He said, I really like those. He went to a couple of them. He says, these are really fun. I said, what is it? And he said, people are so common here. They don't talk about their education, their experience, and they cross-solve problems. They're not as apt to hold back information. So he said, we're just here to get it done, to fix it, uh, solve problems. And he thought there was a cultural difference. And, and I don't know if that's the answer, but that's what I'm leaning towards based upon that conversation I had with the president of another company. Yeah, when I think about those kind of things, it's more about it's fun to work there. That must mean you have endless things to do. You'd always, you always can find another thing. Right? Yeah. You, you have a piece of trash, and it's like, we're getting all kinds of Can't we reuse? Can't we recycle? Uh -huh. Or should we even have this? And so there's always a way to do things better, to make it more sustainable. And the industry has come a long ways. But one of the problems is is the industry gets other people's problems, other people's waste. It oftentimes needs to be engineered on the front end, not on the back end. You know, with, with wind power, these, these turbines, these big blades, they haven't thought about how to recycle or repurpose those. So these huge fiberglass wind, windmill blades, hmm. they don't know what to do with them. They don't landfill well. You know, they it's put them on a semi yeah. and haul them to the landfill, and they try to bury them. I mean, it's, it's a problem. They weren't designed for recycling or reuse or something. They, that wasn't thought of. Or if it was, they didn't decide to put that into the economic model. And you think about electric cars as well, and those those batteries, Yeah. you know, uh, someone told me that when you're designing a new product, the people investing money want to start making more money before they solve the pollution, the problem of what they do with the product when it's done. They'll figure that out later. But really, the engineering should start first. Right as you're designing the thing, how are we going to take it apart? How are we going to dispose of it? That's where the sustainability comes yes. from, right? That's it really should happen backwards. on the front end versus the back end. You're always playing catch-up on the back end. Are there any uh, big competitions in the field, or actually it's roughly the same company for the same year? So actually some, once in a while you got a game-changer entering the company. The industry continues to consolidate. 
investors say nationally is an oligopoly versus a monopoly. There's a few companies that primarily control it, Waste Management, Republic Services, Advanced Disposal. Advanced now is going to be bought by Waste Management. Uh, and there's a lot of smaller companies, but it continually gets fewer and fewer companies that are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, back over 30 years ago, before waste management was on the scene, it was all very local, all very small. Uh, but costs have increased so much. Before there were, like I said, in Wisconsin alone, a thousand landfills. And so it didn't take a lot of technology. You just found a low, wet area. And you think of lacrosse. Before we have the current landfill, Isle of Plume was a landfill. Where the where uh, Huska Park is and the wastewater treatment plant, they used to be the landfill. Push it into a low area, burn it. And if it wasn't wet, you'd burn. And it just no engineering. It was just pushed in. Well, now we go to these very expensive landfills. You have to have deep pockets financially just to build one. That really restricts how many people can get into this. Uh, so it continues to consolidate. Um, but it's a fun industry. That's, I think it's a fun very industry interesting because from what I hear, it's more becoming like a service type of uh, department almost, right? Because everybody has that and uh, everybody needs that. And also the efficiency seems like to be a very, very high priority in this industry because basically you don't want to invest a big money. You just want to pay cheaper and cheaper. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can, cheaper, right? So yeah, price bigger is size a, definitely is makes a, is sense. a big deal. Yep. Yeah. Cool. So let's jump into the recycling business. I know that's where you're specialized in. So you, you were saying like 12% of Roughly our solid waste goes to um, the recycling business. And uh, tell us, give us some several examples. Now that's money-wise 12%. As uh -huh. an example, there's oftentimes a revenue that comes on the recycling end as well that offsets that. But usually recycling has a net cost. Uh, as an example, here in La Crosse County, the waste energy plant is $62 a ton. Okay. The landfill's $62 a ton, excuse me, 63. They went up this year a bucket ton. Okay. Now, Green Circle, the single stream recycling facility, they also charge about $60 a ton. So they all charge very similar amounts per ton. Uh, the waste energy plant, is the fee is set by La Crosse County. Mm -hmm. And so it's a public fee. Everybody pays the same. And at the landfill, the same. Now, Green Circle is private sector. So they may charge different customers different amounts. And a lot of times what Green Circle does is they're tied to Harder's Quick Cleanup, and they may internalize cost as well. So we don't necessarily know. You know, it's not always apples and apples comparing price, but it gives you an idea. There's a cost to recycle. And one of the reasons I said historically, uh, collection and disposal were about 50% each of the market. And now uh, it's not that way. And the reason part of it is, is before, we didn't have a separate truck picking up the recyclables. Now we do. And, and so that, that pulled away the from cost. the cost, that pulled away from the cost of disposal or collection. Actually, excuse me, that added to the cost of collection. Because before we had one truck collecting garbage and recyclables all in one truck. Mm -hmm. it, we didn't recycle, it was just all mixed. Mm -hmm. Now we have two trucks coming by. So that increased the cost a lot for collection. Uh, and that's why this is. And I kind of lost track of your question. Oh, that question was originally is uh, the recycling. Give us some examples, like how things are recycled. For example, sure. if I just throw a, I just order a Coke, mm -hmm. take a soda from the free fountain mm -hmm. and just throw the paper cup into the thing. How does this thing 
like got picked up by trucks and then going to where and finally where does this nothing end? Sure. I'll give you a little history and I'll give a number of examples of, of recycling. Okay. Uh, back in the early 80s, there were a couple of communities that were doing curbside recycling. City of Madison was one. They were one of the leaders and they were collecting newspaper curbside because it made economic sense. Mm-hmm. They were a truck come around or they actually, I think, had a basket on, on the truck that they'd collect newspaper. And then in 1989, there was a recycling law made, the one we're under now, it became effective in 1990. And that's when we started to collect all the commodities, the rigids and the fibers, the rigids being the containers, the glass, the plastic containers, and the fibers being the cardboard and the paper, as an example. And so those systems, when they first came into place, they went from a system that was just newspaper, which was... Uh, not mandatory by state law, but places like Madison did it, to a system that became mandatory, which was oftentimes called dual stream. You'd have your fibers mm-hmm. and you'd have your rigids. And now much of the country, and Wisconsin included, has moved, moved to something we call a single stream, where you mix all your recyclables together. And when you do that, the contamination rate goes up a lot because people just start to throw everything in there, things that aren't recyclable, such as diapers, you know, and someone read somewhere that someone recycled diapers, which might be true, but uh, from a practical economic standpoint, diapers are not recyclable in the single stream, and they're not recyclable locally. Huh. Uh, but people throw diapers in their recycling, and it's true. Uh, isn't, isn't diaper just paper and plastic? It's paper and plastic, and then it's got the absorbent material, which is, uh, I don't know what it is that absorbs the moisture. Uh-huh. Uh, but we don't have systems in locally to take care of that. Huh, interesting. But the contamination rate when you go to single stream goes up a lot versus dual stream. Now, Green Circle locally has a more advanced technology to do single stream where they use an eddy current where they put a charge on the belt of the conveyor that has electricity going to the aluminum and they can pull that off with a magnet because a magnet normally doesn't take aluminum. Uh, and also a magnet, but they also have optical sorters. It's it's pretty advanced system. But there are hundreds of those systems in the United States, but it is pretty advanced. We weren't doing that 20 years ago, uh, but that's pretty advanced. Hilltopper, who I work for, has a dual stream system, which isn't so sophisticated, but we take the rigids and the, and the fiber, and we have a less residue because it's just a simpler system. What used to happen in single stream is we'd try to recycle. We'd tell people they could put out plastics one through seven, mm-hmm. Uh, and seven actually is the number for all the other plastics that we don't have a number for. It just lumps everything together. You could throw all the stuff in here. But a, a lot of the material went to China. And a lot of it was so heavily contaminated. And China has finally said, we're not going to take this stuff anymore. It's Three years ago or something like that. Yes. Right? Yeah. They call it National Sword. Um, we're not going to take this stuff anymore for a number of reasons. One is there was a lot of trash. It wasn't closely regulated. And China had enough recyclable materials in their own country. They didn't need to import it, but they didn't have an infrastructure or a system place to be collecting it. So it's like, why are we bringing in this stuff that's poor quality when we already have it here? This doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so they finally just kind of dropped the gauntlet and said, okay, we're going to start doing our own material and we're not going to take this stuff that's so contaminated, which created a big pushback. And there's really not enough infrastructure in our own country to handle a lot of this stuff. So that pushback meant a lot of the plastics we really don't have a market for. We have one and two, and that's the bulk. 
weight-wise, that's most of it. But the others, oftentimes we don't. And sometimes those markets go up and down, and I don't always know what happens to that material, whether it's still being shipped, you know, off off North America. I don't know. So it's still a myth? Because I, I'm, I'm imagining, like, if China is taking all of them before, and before. suddenly just stopped, like, three years ago, and people would be panicking now. It's just like, okay, suddenly it's from yeah. this high to zero, and where are we going to do all this stuff? You need to have a really... Yeah, and Fast there was a, something maybe, I'm making up the number, but seven years ago, I think we call it Green Fence, where China said, we're getting too much junk. We're going to, and they ratcheted it down, but that kind of went by the wayside. Now they came up with this uh, national sword, it's called, to stop this. And then it started to ship to some other countries, and these other countries are now saying no as well. Yeah. And there's a number of uh, well-advertised communities probably on the coast that have altered their programs a lot because a lot of those recyclable materials left the coast, you know, from New York or from California because it's easier to ship. Um, but then they wanted to bring the material interior to the country where we are. <laughs> then that hurts our markets. Yeah. Uh, so it's tough to move some of those plastics, and that's one of the reasons it costs more to recycle because there's all this abundance of it. Um, we will solve that. That will be solved. But right now it's, it's, it's a tough market. Is it, is, do, do you see the turning point already? Like we're close to how to, to solve it here? Um, or it's still another five, I, ten years adjustment? I don't know if it'll be five or ten years, but there's a lot of things like the economy, how the economy is going. Mm -hmm. Price of oil is an issue. Legislation. There's a lot of factors that go in. You know, a business may not want to invest in recycling plastics when the recycled materials is actually more expensive to clean up than to use virgin oil. Hmm. And so then our government may say, well, we don't want to use virgin oil, even though it's cheaper. So they put a tax on something or a financial incentive. So it's legislation, it's economics. And then if our economy is not very strong at the time because we have a recession, you know, then we're not making products that need that. So there's a lot of factors that play into that. Interesting. So do people actually make money by taking some paper, let's say, and recycle them and resell them? Do, do, does industry make money by just doing that? Or actually, you always I'd lose money, but I you would need to say charge for the service. I would say today you make money by charging for the service. Not and even you, and you make you make some money on selling the paper, but you have to charge for the service. Like, do do you have a, like a, how big of the portion is can be can be can be made up by just you know reuse basically reuse reusing the reusing well, the, the material. The, the markets change continually, mm -hmm. um, but today uh, a business that didn't want to charge for the paper. Mm -hmm. you know, that was collecting at curbside, they wouldn't be able to make it. They've got to charge the customer to take the paper off their hands. Even though they may sell it to a broker, mm -hmm. the broker doesn't pay enough to pay to collect it. So, so there's a net cost. Worth the labor. Huh. Yeah, there's a net cost. But it still may be cheaper than landfilling it. So that's from a price point of view, right? Mm -hmm. But now from the the material point of view, how much of the papers we use, let's say, are recycled. Like every time you go through this cycle, you can probably recycle 80% of it. 20% is just like, okay, totally condemned or something like that. Do you have like a rough number for papers, plastics, and glasses and everything? Well, there's two aspects to that question. One mm -hmm. is how much paper is actually put in the recycling container versus put in the trash. Oh, yeah. Okay, there's that aspect. Let's forget about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then the next aspect, once we send it to the mill, mm -hmm. Uh, if we give them a ton of paper, how much ends up back into paper? Yeah. And in the pulping process, 
the fibers get smaller every time you recycle it. And the fibers have to be a certain length to, to tie together, to hold together in the paper. Mm -hmm. And depending on what they're making, some materials uh, require longer fibers than others. Tissue paper requires one length of fiber, is my understanding, and then the office paper, another length. And you can use it in various products, so it depends what they're making. My gut tells me, and I've known it one time, but I don't know now, it's depending on if it's virgin paper, not been recycled before, 20 to 50% of it can be made into a paper product again. But once they get recycled a second time, then there's more fibers that are shorter that get waste to go out in your, in, in your wastewater again. So, I mean, there's a, there's a limit to that. But I'm not overly concerned about paper because we grow trees for paper, kind of yeah, like we grow process. corn. Yeah. Uh, and not that we should waste paper. And there's all these impacts for harvesting trees and, and all that. So I'm not an advocate for wasting paper. But we can grow more trees. There's some things we don't grow more of. We're not growing more petroleum, as an so example. So what about plastics? Like, can we? How much percent of the plastics can we reuse? Uh, for instance, the um, PET, the number ones, which are the clear plastics, like our water bottles are made out of that, and the soda bottles. That's one of them. Uh, those are quite recyclable, and they make those back into a container. Uh, and the bigger problem usually comes about is getting it into the recycling bin. Hmm. So many plastics don't end up being recycled because they weren't put in the recycling container. I don't know the number there, but I think it's a very high number. Uh, and the number twos, which is, are uh, high-density polyethylene, and those are like the plastic milk jugs or the detergent bottles. Hmm. They're kind of an opaque or translucent sort of color. Um, those are very recyclable. And those get made into things like plastic lumber because they don't deteriorate in sunlight. I see. And there's a growing demand for plastic lumber type applications. So those are the two big ones that we use. And by weight, those are the, the biggest volume of plastics. Some of the other plastics are, are quite problematic. Uh, I think it's number three is PVC, mm -hmm. polychlorinated, poly, you probably know what it's the called. The pipes, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and those oftentimes have toxic components that can leach. Uh, but they also hold up well in uh, polyvinyl chloride is what PVC is. Uh, but those are quite recyclable, too, but uh -huh. they have not recycled as much. Uh, the polystyrene, you know, the coffee cups. Most Plastic, place, plastic coffee cups, like the well, ones I got from McDonald's? the foam ones, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's plastic? Foam. Yes. The, I thought only the cover was plastic. I thought that whole thing was a paper cup. Well, they have made out of paper as well, but the ones that are soft and fuzzy and will, oh, yeah, yeah. you crush them, they, they break into pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, those, it's like packaging material made out of that as well. Uh, we're actually at Hilltopper recycling that stuff now. Uh, but we have to, we get it from a place that, that densifies it. Mm -hmm. And then we have an outlet for that. We're thinking of buying an extruder where we might densify that as well. But the problem is collecting it. Takes such a huge volume. You get a truck full of stuff and it doesn't weigh anything. So yeah. it costs a lot to get a little. So if you get someone to deliver it to you for free, we could densify it and maybe make money. But if we have to go and collect it, it gets very expensive. Probably people smash it or something will actually save some of the room, but still it's pretty pretty light. It's pretty light. Interesting. Pretty so light. the shape actually started playing into And one thing that's interesting yeah. in the systems that make sense, when you have to make a special trip to recycle. Mm -hmm. It starts to really kill the sustainability. 
have to make a special trip to some place because because of the economic yes um but if you're already going somewhere for instance and i don't want to if you're already going to a certain store or grocery store if you take your recyclables there you're already going there Mm -hmm. then you're not an extra trip then you could say there's no extra transportation cost because you're going there anyway so it's more about the marginal cost in this kind yes. of thing. Yeah, that yes. reminds me because I, I got friends who live in Japan, and Japan is insane on this kind of thing. They have probably 50 different kind of uh, trash box, and you, you put the right kind of things into the right kind of box, uh, box. So basically, everybody is actually doing actual work. Not the guys who are doing the waste. It's actually everybody, literally. Japan doing, would be a good that. place to compare and study because my understanding, and I've not been to Japan culturally, the people more align with messages. Yeah. In America, people more apt to try to do their own thing, and it's all it gets crazy. It's kind of like the Wild West by comparison to a com- to a country that has a culture that this is the message, this is what we do, yeah. and I mean people comply pretty well. Collective uh, responsibilities. Yes. Same thing with China. I think in Shanghai, people are actually starting to joking about it. To just like you know, we don't have fifty, but we do have twelve. Mm-hmm. So now it's just like, okay, are you a wet trash <laughs> or are you a dry trash? Yes. <laughs> Every time they think about like a diaper, is, is diaper dry? Is diaper like wet or like like a shrimp? Mm-hmm. Leftover shrimp from your food. Is that dry? Is that wet? So people are actually joking about it. But I think, yeah, China probably is going to get that thing done. Like not China, Shanghai is going to get that thing mm-hmm. done. And then maybe the, the model can be developed into the whole, whole country. But that's interesting to, to hear about. So... um. Do you see any automation will actually help to solve these kind of problems? Uh, I talked about uh, dual stream recycling, mm-hmm. single stream recycling. There's another recycling called whole stream. Okay. Uh, San Jose, Houston, and uh, I forget the other city that are doing it. And whole stream, the, another word that we used years ago was dirty MRF, material recovery facilities, MRF. And what it is, you put all your waste together. Including the non-recycling ones? Everything. Trash, garbage, waste, diapers, yard waste, everything. You put it together, and they separate it mechanically. And so they have machines that will take the organics for composting. They'll separate the glass, the grades of plastic, et cetera. Fairly, quite expensive. Um, But the Solid Waste Association of North America did did research on this comparing the three cities that did it. And it needs to be looked at more because I think the results um, look like they're better than I really think they are. In terms of efficiency? Efficiency and success because they look like they're pretty good. But they rely on technology. You know, screens and densities and air knives. That's You take a blast air to push things through. Various types of magnets, eddy currents. Optical sorting, where you know they it's just it's just like wow, but it makes it really easy for homeowners. You just throw it all in there and it goes away. It's crazy, crazy to think about because how many different trash do you have? And I mean, and it changes. The, the easiest way to do is actually for each type of trash, you've just built a process to how you figure out type one, type two, yeah. but then you, and have you type get a plastic bottle with a metal lid. Yeah, you know. Those have to be separated somewhere. So do you grind it up and take it out little, little pieces? There's uh-huh. just seems like that. Like, uh, if you compare to Japan, Japan is actually using all the distributed human power to do this, but uh, in the United States, it's always okay if we have a one-stop using technology, and so people don't have to do anything. That's always the other way around, right? Yeah, and, and I How would say... How long have they been, been doing this? 
like whole stream? Whole stream, yeah. Uh, at least seven years. Seven years. That's long enough to see some significance. Yeah, at least seven years. And San Jose was doing it just for apartment buildings, not for not for single family residents. Houston was doing it on trial. And the other city was on the west coast. I can't remember the name of the city. Okay. But um, no one's... Houston was, I think, going to do it for everyone, but I haven't heard where they actually implemented it other than their, the trials. It's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive for me. Why, don't they, why do they do it for apartment, not for the houses? Because to me, the difference is just collect, the collecting process, right? The, and to the, me, like, if you collect everything in one trash box, it's actually easier. When they were at apartment buildings, they said there was such turnover of, of uh, people living there uh-huh. that they had the highest contamination rate, and they couldn't get them to separate into organics, you know, and, and the recyclable and the trash. They just had this chronic problem of contamination. So they just decided that's how they'd do it. So probably whole stream is more uh, is relatively efficient, but only in those kind of situations, right? So compared to the old that's method? What, yeah, yeah, and okay. they were frustrated because I think San Jose really wants to get a high recycling rate, and they were failing on the multifamily housing areas. Given the population there, density there, like this seems like a reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What are some exciting technologies you use at your company? <laughs> oh, When did they come? Like you have been yeah. here for long enough, so you must say in the 1990s we had this, and in 2000 suddenly <laughs> new machines We don't come. rely, with technology comes cost, uh-huh. And with those costs, you really need great volume to actually reduce the unit costs. And so we are not a big company that focuses on technology. We focus on quality. And one of the things that we've moved to are the things that basically people haven't touched. They're just holes in the system that we need to fix. And I'll name a few of those. One of them is uh, special events. Wisconsin law requires everyone to recycle businesses, homeowners, places of faith, colleges, everybody's supposed to recycle, but special events weren't. You know, Oktoberfest, <laughs> Riverfest, Cornfest, yeah. all these places weren't recycling. Now, that's changed quickly. Uh, most of those are now. In fact, this past year, Oktoberfest recycled part of the parade for the first time ever. Who does that? Well, we did it. They hired us to do it so for a quarter they, mile. they go ahead and hire a company we, and say, do this. Yep. Okay. We handed out plastic bags and told people to put the recyclables in, and after the parade, we went and, and collected those. Um, but it doesn't, create new, doesn't demand new technology. Someone just has to step up and engage and educate to get this done. Another one is organics. Uh, we started this year, and it was a UWL student that we hired as an intern okay. that heads us up. You know, kudos for UWL and, and getting one of your students that is is, is working wonders which, for which us. Which department is he in? Uh, Parks and Rec. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, yeah, his degree was in uh, outdoor recreation, I think. Outdoor recreation. Okay, I would yeah. definitely let them know. Um, well, he's still connected with them, you know, he because we're looking for more. Okay, <laughs> nice. Great. Um, but, for instance, uh, People's Food Co-op, Festival Food. Uh, uh, the food pantry and others, they had all this organic waste from preparing food that they throw in the trash. Why can't we collect that and compost that? Well, we are, and we can. So is organic waste 
considered to be recyclable? Well, it's compostable. Compostable. What is compostable? It means you let it rot. <laughs> okay. You let it decay. Okay. And then use it as a soil amendment. I see. Okay. So it's still different from landfill. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It doesn't go to the landfill, and it helps our plants. And um, so we're doing that, and it's cheaper than landfill. Uh, there's an added cost because you have an extra truck that has to make a special trip. You have to keep it separate. But that's not new technology, but that's a hole that was left in our system that no one was, was doing anything with. So we've stepped into that. So that's kind of our business model is to step in the things that don't require new technology, but just isn't being done. Mattress recycling is one of those as well. That's not high tech. Why is mattresses special? Because everybody was landfilling those. Uh-huh. And they're recyclable. They Interesting. Just I do that. And my wife actually has a mattresses store. Mm-hmm. And all the mattresses people return, we just put them to the <laughs> <laughs> You know, Woodman? Yeah. And you just drive like, I don't remember, 15 minutes after that, turn yeah. right, and there's a landfill. We'll pay yeah. 20 bucks per mattresses. Well, at the landfill, just to, to, Shame to be us, fair. Yeah. Well, yes and no, <laughs> because you might be recycling and don't realize you are. Okay. Because... Um, if you take it to the landfill operating phase, it gets buried. You get charged $18 plus the weight. Okay. And so at 60 bucks a ton, that's about $0.03 cents a pound. A 70-pound mattress is $2.10. So a little over 20 bucks you pay to get rid of a mattress if you put it in. But if you put it in the container that they have there for the public to use, uh-huh. and businesses can use it too, it gets recycled, and the cost is thirteen fifty. So I say... If- Seven bucks. Yeah. By putting the same location, right? At the yes. same location, just putting it in it's the right the container. Same site. And they very well may put it in there. But the public might not know it's being recycled unless you ask. And then they come to us for recycling, as an example. So when you say you recycle mattresses, do you recycle them to make mattresses again? Or do you recycle no. them to, for something else? A mattress, it's amazing how many different type of mattresses there are. But the ticking, the outside cloth, is almost always attached to foam. Mm. And we can recycle it. We call it quilting. But you can recycle that. And what they do is they grind it up and they take the foam. And the layer below that is almost always a big block of foam, polyurethane. And so we have a bale of the ticking or quilting and bales of just the foam. And they go to a place that ends up grinding those up. And they use it as carpet backing. Mm. So it doesn't get made back to a mattress, but it goes in the backing of carpet. And then uh, the other thing that's in there is the steel springs. And those go to uh, local metal recyclers, and they go to, to mills, and they get made into more metal tools or whatever metal is. Which will lead to another question. Is carpet recyclable? Uh, yes. Most things you could say are recyclable, uh-huh. but the better question is, are they recycled? Okay. Because there's a lot of things that are recyclable that don't get recycled for various reasons. But, for instance, the... Um, uh, the nylon carpet is. Some mm-hmm. carpets practically are not. Uh, and some may be, but it's just too cost prohibitive mm. to do that. Mm. But the nylon is. And we want to do that ourselves, but there's a laser that identifies the carpet type. And the laser costs $70,000. <laughs> and a lot of carpets aren't. And so what we would do, if we got into that program, we'd buy the laser, go to the job site, use it to identify the type of carpet it is and if it's recyclable cost effectively then we would take it if it's not they'd probably end up landfilling it 
Uh, that just takes a lot more work and effort, effort and cost. It's all about volume, right? I was actually surprised that the mattresses waste are big enough for you to actually just build an additional line to just handle mattresses. It seems like you're handling it differently than others. Well, we actually we take it to a totally different site. Oh. We have its, its own building that we it's, take it to. So the, the, the how to say, the, the volume of the mattresses are that big? Yes. You have such yes such a big volume to um, sustain the whole chain. What's, yeah. what's, what's interesting, last year we did... Uh, 16,000 mattresses this year, we think you we'll do. You look across? Yeah. City? Well, we don't know where necessarily where they always come from. They come from a mattress store. Okay. 16,000. So, yeah. And... Uh, with only 50,000 <laughs> population. We're going to do 20,000 this year. <laughs> and I just, I just like, know we are. Okay. Just, just listen to the number here. We got 50,000 people here, plus on Alaska, 60,000. You divide by one family with three members. That's exactly 20,000 <laughs> mattresses. We get more than from La Crosse County. Every uh, year? Yes. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some of the mattresses, you know, I thought it would be fun. Maybe students were like this. I wanted to do a art show. Uh-huh. And maybe we should, maybe we want to cut this part of the tape. I don't know. <laughs> Depends. We wanna, you don't curse. You don't I say won't, anything I won't curse. inappropriate. We, we want to cut off the ticking because some of the ticking, uh, it tells a story. People will say every mattress tells a story. <laughs> So we want to cut off the outside fabric and put it in a frame and put it on the wall and have a cheese and wine party and have people, you know, have a paper next to it and describe what story they think that mattress tells. And then another piece of paper, give us your ideas of things we might do to repurpose it or recycle it. And then have like the social event. And I could just see the media would like that because it's kind of off the wall. It's kind of a crazy idea. But it might be fun. Maybe you know, we, you know what's better? Make it a competition. <laughs> like, yeah, here's the mattresses. Like, you know, all the teams came up with your own story. <laughs> We're yeah. going to compete who has the best story. <laughs> what happened on this mattress? Yeah, what happened on this mattress? Interesting. Yeah. I didn't ever, I actually didn't, I, I never know actually the mattresses has, was such a big waste. Wow. Do you see any other type of things which are not recycled right now but should be? Recycled, given the economic or just the, the damage or harm to the land? Um, there's probably a number of things that probably shouldn't be produced before they have a, a way to get to deal with those. Uh, I'm still focused on those uh, wind turbines. Okay. It's like, wow, we need to be designing those differently. I'm concerned about the electric cars and dealing with the batteries in manufacturing. We don't have those. much here, right? Like no, we don't have many here right now. Right. Um, and also you'll see a product that comes out, um, you'll see, uh, the microbreweries, they'll have a new beer bottle, but it's hard to get the labels printed on the can directly. So they have an attached label, which hurts the recyclability. Hmm. And it's like, it's a microbrewery. It's doing some really cool things. It's just, it's wonderful. But then you have this container. That's a problem. Um, and one of the best ways to look at it, it's it's just everything's right before us, but it starts to blur. Is you take a waste stream and you just pour it on the floor and you say, where does that go? Where does that go? Where does that go? Well, I've seen a lot of these. What do we do with them? Hmm. And the all, almost always you need volume. You need volume. You need volume. But I mean, but how I, I I don't know one particular mattresses was one of the ones that came to the forefront, and that's yeah. where we're focusing on that. Because the problem here is child like, car seats would be another one. Oh yeah. That's another one. And people use that thing like crazy. Like, I just had a baby. 
I talked to no, all my didn't. friends who. Uh, Your wife did. Okay. <laughs> well, I had a baby okay. <laughs> produced by my wife. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, now I'm recycling it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I talked to several several of my friends, and they mm -hmm. all buy those kind of car seats, which they only use that thing for like from six months to a year, or like yeah. at most one year and a half. I probably got if I want, I can actually get six of them. And they have an expiration date on them, which is yeah. They tell you that they're not. They're not safe after a certain period of time. Yeah, which is I think is a marketing thing. I don't know why they're not safe. Is the plastic deteriorating that much? I don't know the answer. Or maybe the baby but, become just sized become. Well, big, yeah, or? they are. There's that as well. But they actually have oh, an a different due date. Yes. Wow. The seat itself, you cannot use for future children because it its safety quality expires. So even if you have a second kid. It depends how soon depends you have them. You yeah, better you have, have them bing, 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 yeah, you know? Okay, interesting. Yeah, that, that that actually did hit me. Like, why we're just go see, and so much, so many clothes we got from other kids, you know, who is like six months older, one year older. It's just like, wow, mm -hmm. child stuff is a lot. And of course, clothing is still a big one. Yeah. Uh, clothing is a big one. Um, just given like how cheap the clothes currently are sold and how many people are actually just wearing all kinds of clothes you just go to a closet you just like this you, you could never wear all these you don't right. even remember you had those I really wish they got all got recycled just like you know take a t-shirt go back somehow scramble in, and just give me a t-shirt back right yeah are the people currently doing that with clothes uh, there are a number of companies that do find other uses there's one company in Chicago and there's others like it called Wipeco uh -huh. and what they try to do is make rags out of them for wiping things up a lot of clothing, if you take it to the recycling bins, they get they get uh, put in uh, cargo containers, probably by the bale, and mm -hmm. get shipped to developing countries where they buy them per pound. Okay. And then they resort those and use those locally. A lot of them just get landfilled. Which well, is actually, crazy. Locally, yeah. they go to the waste energy plant. Here's what's interesting. La Crosse County is one of a few refuse-derived fuel facilities. Most are mass burn, and the difference is when waste goes to our waste energy program, it's processed into fuel and then burned. Most waste energy programs, they're mass burned. They take all the waste and put them right in the boiler. They don't process them first. And what harm does it do if you don't process them and put them in the burner? Gas? It, it, uh, emis you have more uh, air cleanup you have to do. But mm. the air quality is probably the same. It's just more effort on the cleanup. I see. And I've been to mass burns where uh, there'll be a child's doll that's wrapped up in a blanket really tight, and it comes out in the ash, and you still can identify it, it's a doll. Hmm. With the refuse-derived fuel, it gets ground up first, and you won't be able to identify that it was a doll. Um, but when textiles go to the waste energy plant locally, if it's just one bag of clothing, it'll get processed just fine. But if you have a pickup truck load that all goes in there, it potentially could plug the hammer mill because all those textiles in a slug oh, yeah. doesn't grind up well and so that that's a problem uh so that's why it's pretty sturdy too it's oh, pretty yeah. hard to remove them yeah, yeah. i can imagine <laughs> yeah that's probably not a fun job <laughs> <laughs> interesting so uh let's go back to actual sustainability because yes. you have actually a lot of experiences on this and plus currently i checked you are actually the um member of and the owner of, of the Salmon Rivers Region Sustainability Group, right? Yes. So the first question I have is, like you said, when you start to make a product, you probably should consult with the waste people to just say, hey, 
where the listing is going to go at the end of the day. Yes. That do a lot of companies currently do that? Do government require that? It's not required. Mm -hmm. I would say most companies do not. And I'd also say those that do, they still do it very internally. You've heard of the circular economy with recycling? Nope. Well, that is, you have, it's, people have heard of, you've heard of the phrase cradle to grave with waste. You need to take care of, okay, I'm throwing out some terms, but I'll define those. <laughs> yeah. Cradle is like birth. Grave okay. is like death. Okay. And so in the hazardous waste industry, they say you need to take responsibility for your hazardous waste from the time it's created to the time it's disposed, cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. Well, the circular economy, you need to take responsibility cradle to cradle. Okay. Instead of it just having an end where you dispose of it, you need to reprocess it, recreate cradle to cradle. And companies, for-profit companies, they don't want to involve too many people in what they're designing because they lose their edge, perhaps. I'm just thinking that's the case. And so they talk internally. And so if we have a circular economy, cradle to cradle, you need to involve all the people in the cradle to cradle process. And I don't think that happens. Um, And I think that's a real problem. That's a real problem. So I'll say if you have a circular economy, you have to have circular conversations. You need to involve people all the way through so you can this thing can keep going around. And that's part of sustainability. And I'd say for the most part it doesn't happen. And to, to give me, well, for instance, with mattresses, one of the big things, and I'm told by some people, it's a marketing thing more than it's really a comfort thing. Salespeople disagree, but there's a lot of conversation on that. And that's what's called the pocket coils. So each spring in a mattress is wrapped in a textile. Okay. To take that textile off takes time. Hmm. So before, you could process a mattress in maybe 10 minutes. But now it may take over a half hour because you got to take off every one of those. And a number of people say it's only to help sell it to the customer. It doesn't really improve the quality of the mattress. Now, a lot of companies will argue because they've got this big pitch out there otherwise. I don't know what the truth is, but I'm saying is in a circular economy, you design that so those textiles come off easily, not each one, you know, and they say, well, just grind them up. Well, there's another machine and there's more cost. That needs to be in a circular conversation to have a circular economy. Interesting, because then you need to think about the overall optimization, just like, well, you lose a little bit, let's say, in terms of comfortability, but you save a lot of trouble when you do the waste. And you know, those overall, child, we yeah. still win, right? Yes, yeah. those child seats, those child seats, those things are crazy. If they expire for safety in three years because of the type of plastics used. Use a better plastic. Use a better plastic. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is, but in essence, that's just a big waste. That's such a waste. Maybe cars should be designed so the seats will be safe for children. Now, I don't know what that will take. Mm-hmm. It may raise the cost of a vehicle $1,000. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying let's have this conversation on sustainability in a circular way to involve everybody. That's interesting because if you think about, like, say, I'm just going to charge more if I have those kind of mattresses because it costs me so much more trouble. But who is going to pay for that? It's actually the customer. Like, when they buy a mattress, they never thought about, oh, why recycle these mattresses I have? I need to pay. Yeah. And when that thing happens, actually what they do is they put it in the landfill. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah, I can tell you. There's an see. embedded cost to the <laughs> yeah. customer that they don't realize until they throw it out. And then we find all kinds of ways to, hey, I am not going to pay $50 to recycle that. Yeah. I mean, they're going to burn it in my backyard. 
or I'm just going to bring it to landfills right? mm -hmm. in case anybody find out. Mm -hmm. right? Interesting. So then may I ask for the people in the industry of solid waste, what's your opinion on consumption economies? Because everything you just said, I think like companies love it. If I'm a car seat company, I want everybody to change their car seat every six months. But what's your, what's your guys take on this? Uh, certainly the industry of solid waste and recycling benefits by a consumptive yeah. economy. Yeah. Uh, I would say in the the people I mostly rub shoulders with in the Solid Waste Association of North America, truly they focus on doing what I'll call the right thing big picture. And most of them don't get their uh, salaries based upon how much is thrown away. They get their salaries based upon managing the waste stream recycling stream better. And so I would say the professionals in the industry really are not into the consumptive society or economy. So you're not expecting this thing to grow. The bigger, the better. Yeah, and I, I really think, and there's, the more you work on this cir circular conversation, that requires more management, that requires more effort, and there's more work to do in that. That on the front end will not reduce probably the amount of money that goes to the people that manage that industry. It will shrink probably the number of drivers on trucks and things like that which is, is probably good. Uh, but I would think our industry, one of the things that's interesting, uh, when there was a big push for recycling, there was a lot of talk that wasn't really upfront about how certain big companies were opposed to recycling because it's gonna pull the revenues away from the landfill. Yes, yeah. And it did. Okay. But it pushed a lot of money towards the recycling centers and extra trucks to haul it. So the actual size of the industry grew when they diverted material from the landfill. Landfills took less waste per capita, but there was more management of waste that happened. So who's to say that if we don't work more on managing the waste better, that the industry might even get bigger? I mean, I don't know for sure. Uh, there may be some magic thing where we only have two types of plastic and it's all recyclable and we don't have to have all this extra handling. I don't know. Interesting. So the I, big picture, I just like the idea, and this may be me speaking, focusing on doing the right thing and then working on issues as you go versus trying to couch yourselves as, oh, that might make me less money. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I feel when, you, when I hear you talking about. It seems like the people in this industry still care about collective benefits compared to self-interest. Because like, if I'm a company, I'm an entrepreneur, why do I care? Like the moment I can get the money, right? But it seems like you guys are still have, have, still have those kind of responsibility and the community feelings about yes, doing the right thing. Yes, and a lot of the problem, I would say, actually focuses on things that happen upstream in the design. Mm -hmm. uh, and also in society wanting convenience over what helps manage things better. There's always that aspect, you know, of this convenience. A lot of communities didn't want to go recycling because that meant, oh, now I got two containers to put out at the curb versus yeah. one. I guess you guys are the only ones who sees the cost. And other people, all other people just, just see the, the, the reward. So, yeah. Until you actually go to the grave and see what's happening there, you will actually start to rethink everything again. You don't know actually how 
I mean, once nothing leaves my house, for example, it's not my trouble. Yeah, I wonder if, and a lot of people take tours of the landfill, take tours of the waste energy plant, and take tours of the recycling facility. And it won't change everyone's mind. Mm-hmm. But when people start seeing that, it helps people think through things a little better. Are you guys doing something like that? Giving people tours at your facilities yes. or just building yep. a... The like tours are given thing. all the time and they're always available. Uh-huh. Yes. Do, do a lot of people show up and see? Uh, I don't get involved anymore at the Waste Energy Dependent or the landfill. Uh-huh. But I know there are hundreds and hundreds of people every year that go through through those. With kids? Yeah, kids and adults. Okay. Uh, back in when we first started the waste energy program uh, in 1988 to the early 90s when I was giving lots of tours, is basically it was just ongoing with the tours. But it was really innovative for our region. There's only two waste energy programs in the state of Wisconsin. We're the only refuse-derived fuel one in the state of Wisconsin. And there's 90 waste energy programs, roughly, 89, 90, in uh, the U.S., mm-hmm. There's two in Wisconsin. A lot of states don't have any, and most of them are on the East Coast or Florida. Uh, California doesn't even have that many. Um, Huh. Interesting. Well, the focus in California is recycle it. Recycle, recycle, recycle. And it's like waste energy is kind of like landfilling. So recycle, 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 and then landfill. So, okay, back to the sustainability topic. Now we are not going to talk about economics or our life. Let's talk about environment. So... Like, what are the some some challenges you see uh, in this business or in this sustainability group in Lacrosse? Um, what are some challenges you guys say? Well, this probably need to be fixed soon. Sure. Uh, I like to tie things to economics, and that's I'm going to go to sustainability. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what do you mean by economics? Is it economics? Not, not, in not like not not consumption for our life. It's more about okay, environment. Yes. Okay. But, but still, we can have, we have approach the environment yeah. from, from an economic standpoint. Yep. It's like if you look at the cost in one year, and you push off the long-term cost to the next generation. For instance, you have all this waste, and you're just going to throw it out in the field, and it contaminates the groundwater. That who's going to pay for that? It's the future, future people, future generation. If you look at the economics, that you have to manage your material for the full cost, life cycle cost, not just for today, because a lot of the things we do bad today impact the future, and we're not paying for that. For instance, people usually feel landfills are ugly, and they don't want to live by one, even if it's closed. For sure, the, and it hurts housing prices. There's a there's there's a disamenity to live by a landfill because your housing price is less, and since your housing price is less, the taxes government gets on that property is less, and so that means people who live further away are having to pay for that. So that landfill and its tipping fee needs to pay for more to offset the loss in property tax. And what if that landfill leaks? Who's going to pay? For the environmental cleanup and the other cleanup. It's not the people that bury the trash, it's the people 20, 30 years in the future. What if we started to charge people up front for those future costs? And they're environmental costs, but they're delayed into the future. And so we can actually do sustainability by thinking way down the road 
what are the potential long-term implications for what we do environmentally? And it even can be aesthetics. Looking over a beautiful valley of a natural landscape is beautiful. You can have a park there that has a certain value versus looking over a desolated area or a place that has this truncated pyramid that you know is a landfill that's got 30 years of someone's trash in there. And so one of the things on sustainability environmentally is we need to pay for those costs up front versus passing it on down to the next generation or a future generation. We have a number of problems that way, uh, that we've just kicked the can down the road. Uh, and I think we can solve a lot of things just by using economics, by extending our view of economics. And that's an environmental aspect. You know, breathing clean air. What if more people are getting cancer? Who should pay for that? Sometimes it's actually even your old self did that to your yeah right now, right? Sure. So you, you don't even got to complain. Or like your kids, why? Because you throw some waste a long time ago. Yeah. But that's a tough mindset for people to have right now because you are talking about charging up, up front. So many people are actually borrowing from the future. So. Exactly. We've done it. <laughs> we do that all the way, all, 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 all the time when we buy houses and cars. And now you're saying, hey, but for land waste, exactly opposite mindset. But I totally see the see your point. I can totally see yeah, why you, you say, can see that. Yeah. Let's take the house example. Yeah. Let's say you can't afford it today. Uh -huh. But basically, you put your name on the line for that future cost. You did. You actually didn't kick the cost to a future generation. Theoretically, maybe you could, but you're not. But you signed your name on. And so if we kind of know what that environmental cost might be, basically you're signing your name for that debt and you're going to be taxed for it and you're not going to pass it on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So when you die, if you haven't paid your environmental tax, it's still waiting for you. That maybe sounds like anti-American, but it's for a conversation. You know, yeah. you caused that problem. You should pay for it. And if you don't have the money today, you need to see what that is. And so when you go to retire, your retirement's smaller because you're still paying for the implications of what you did. Do you see the possibility of actually doing something, I won't say it's the same or similar to what Japan is doing, is just like, okay, everybody take your responsibility and don't just leave all the job to, our, to us solid waste guys. Like you guys do your job. It's just like two minutes extra for you, which will save us hours, hours, days, a month to actually get this thing done. Do you ever see that thing will ever happen? What do you, if we advertise hard, um, push hard or? Education's key, getting a culture to be unified on certain fronts. And our culture is pretty diverse with a lot of different thinking. I think for America, it'd be one of the hardest places to pull that off. So better let Tax, <laughs> do the job. I may be, I may be, it's just, um, and there's, it's just, in some ways, it's a, there's a lot of things I really, I, I love America. I'm a U.S. citizen <laughs> and I love America, but there's unique things about America too. And uh, everybody marching to the same drummer, so to speak, is pretty hard. Interesting. It's pretty hard here. So unless you put a tax on it which is another way to say, hey, do your job, <laughs> otherwise yeah, you pay. <laughs> there's a, something out there called product stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what that is, and they do it with mattresses in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and California. They've determined what it costs to recycle that mattress at end of life. And so they collect the fee, and it 
it varies in each state, but it's roughly $10 a mattress. Uh-huh. So if you, whenever you buy a mattress, they collect the $10. It goes to a receiving company business. It's a 501c3. It's a nonprofit that holds it. And then they pay the mattress recycler to recycle it. So when they get rid of it, it's free because they paid for it when they bought it. Who does it? Is this a government It's a nonprofit. It's called Mattress Recycling Council. They do it in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and California. So whenever you buy a new mattress, you're forking up about $10. Each state is different. This company holds it, Mm -hmm. and then they contract with mattress recyclers. It it charge nothing. So when you get rid of an old mattress, there's no charge. That's Uh, kind of the upfront thing you were talking about, Yep, that's the upfront. That's called product stewardship. Product stewardship. Totally mixed. Are they growing? Uh, well, it was one state, now it's three. Uh, within within and, the past five, seven years? Uh, the laws became effective in 2015. Okay, only four years, yeah. five, four or five years. In New York City, uh, Governor Cuomo is talking about doing something similar, but he doesn't want to do it through Mattress Recycling Council. And so that I just read a news article in the last month. How many people actually that. does that? Or is it actually required by the law? You have to. It's required by the law. Okay, so everybody State does law. it. Everybody you don't have a choice, it. yeah. You don't have a choice. That means if, if we do that here, we're going to have 20,000 people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, 20,000 people paying per year 10 yes. bucks to get your mattresses recycled. Great. Wow. I think we hit the one-hour mark, and uh, I learned a lot from this conversation. Great. I would like to learn more, actually, later. I definitely is going to go to your tool someday. Do you do, is your tool open to the public? You just yes. drop by or uh, well, do you need a reserve? Well, you should or? have an appointment. Okay. Um, the mattress recycling facility is not open to the public. We only take people that, that uh, transfer stations, mattress stores, landfills, they come in. But we've given a number of appointments. In fact, I had uh, one of the instructors here at UWL huh. on her class. We had a whole class <laughs> tour. Uh, For which class? Uh, I think it was an environmental class of some sort. Totally, yeah, they, they, yeah. they totally nailed it. And it was, I think, two years ago, it was right during Halloween, and we don't have good lighting. <laughs> and I was giving the tour when some pigeons flew down. It, it, it was kind was of it, Was scary. it outdoor or indoor? Uh, it was indoor, but it's not heated. Okay. Yeah. And how, how long the tour is? Uh, for the mattress recycling facility, about 20 minutes is all 20 minutes? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's fascinating. But the fascinating places are the landfill. Really, the landfill is a really fascinating tour, and the waste energy plant as well. Those are really fascinating tours. Why? They're big, and there's a lot of stories, and you kind of get involved in the enormity of it. And at the waste energy plant, one thing I like, you can actually, they've got a window. You can look into the boiler and watch the stuff burn. It's like a sneak preview to hell. <laughs> Maybe I should say that, but that's what I always say. Well, how yeah, there's how a often do you light the yeah. flame per day? Or is it just continuously, continuously it, burning? It, it's, burning. A, it's called a peaking plant. Uh-huh. It doesn't compete well with the very large electrical generators. So it runs, I don't know, from 8 to 5, I'll say, or maybe 8 to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, they shut it down on weekends. Okay, so you could just save um, some energy costs, But right? you need to have an appointment there as well. Cool. Uh, but, yeah, those are good tours. Those are fun tours. I would definitely check it out. Well, thank you so much yep, for joining us, Brian. You.